welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Jim Donahue as my guest here in our brand new studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Jim is the executive chairman of STO Building Group, or better known, at least in my world, as Structure Tone. Jim is a 30-plus year veteran of the construction industry, learning the business from the bottom up, holding various positions in the field as a laborer in the summers, in operations, estimating, and management of Structure Tone's regional offices, and eventually leading the executive team for the entire Structure Tone organization. As executive chairman, Jim also ensures the company's unwavering commitment to community. He and the Structure Tone organization are among the most generous companies out there. There is no event in New York or New Jersey, and I'm sure in other areas of the country, where they are not a major sponsor or the main sponsor. Jim is the chairman of many charities, and how I really got to know Jim is through the National Multiple Sclerosis Society of New York, among also working with the company uh, on the construction side. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, MS Society later. Uh, the Structure Tone organization is one of the largest construction companies in the world with over 4,000 employees throughout the US, Canada, UK, and Ireland. From hotels around the world to countless Fortune 500 office headquarters to Canary Wharf to even the renovation of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Structure Tone is everywhere, especially in New York. And they just celebrated their 50th anniversary a few weeks ago. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be my guest on the show. I'm happy to be here, Christian. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, our companies go way back, so it's uh, it's it's nice to have you here. Um, let's talk a little bit about architects, uh, just in general, and kind of the business of architecture, since you work with so many architects all the time. If you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about architects? It doesn't have to be bad. <laughs> it's not something I would say is annoying. Um, I really do love working with architects. Uh, I uh, am always inspired by uh, what they bring to the table and the conversation. But the challenge we typically face that can get frustrating is just a recognition of the schedule that we face. And, and you know, it's on us to help share knowledge on cost side, but the lack of cost related to when we're budgeting and then ultimately building the constructability side of the design can become a challenge too. So those are the typical pinch points, right? Those are not yep. unique to me really, but that's, if I had to say there's an area where we can always collaborate earlier so we have a better outcome, it's kind of those things. That is absolutely the, the, the you know, like the number one answer if you have, this was, uh, what is that, right. the price is right or the survey says thing, whatever the thing is. What goes wrong 101, yep. yeah. That, that is definitely the number one answer. And I always say, do not trust an architect when they start quoting costs. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, listen, we try our best. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we want to look knowledgeable in front of our clients and we're only as good as the, the very similar job that we did and the most recent job that we did where we can maybe cut, you know, generally square footage costs, but there's so many factors that go into those things where it, it always makes me nervous to quote costs. We'd much rather say, we'll get back to you. Let us talk to a, a contractor. Yeah. Listen, architects are very thoughtful, uh, more so than contractors. I don't mind putting that out there. <laughs> uh, but just a quick story was I remember one project 20 years ago. So a long time ago, uh, that architect's not, uh, in the industry any longer, he re retired out. Um, but he, the entire length of the project I kept hearing when I go to home Depot, that's not what that cover plate cost. And I just said, now that was annoying. That was annoying <laughs> because he, it wasn't once, it was over and over. And uh, it was just a, you know, there's a relationship issue, right? That's yeah. not, that's not a knowledge problem or a, or an approach for their company. It was him personally. <laughs> he had no appreciation what we were trying to do. So, <laughs> but that's not common. That's very uncommon. Yeah. So in your opinion, what do architects do well and what do we do? Let's say not necessarily wrong, but not so well. Where, where do you see us kind of, what are our strengths and what are our weaknesses in there? 
I think what the architects do that's fascinating to me is, I guess it comes with years of experience and training, is they break down the client's needs. They get to know the company, the client's company in an exceptional way, maybe more so in times than the client would even know their own company. So I find that extraordinary. Um, the innovation that they bring, I think they're in competition when they win the assignment most of the time. So they really do have to be a little out of the box. One of their challenges is to make sure the new space is better than the old space. So they're really innovative, yeah, more so than the contractors. So those are a couple of things that I think is, uh, you know, it, it really sets them apart from the other disciplines and the participants. Yeah, the architect, I will say one, one thing that we do do in general in the, you know, in the profession, not just us, but but most uh, is we do get in the heads of the of the client, right? Whether that's the real estate side or the owner or the owner's rep, whatever it might be. And we really get in the heads and we really try to understand everything about their you know, their company culture or whatever they're trying to achieve from a business point of view. And that's one of the exciting parts about, you know, our job is that we get we get access to some pretty incredible decision makers. You know, I've sat in and so have you like in front of Jamie Dimon and, you know, in front of Bob Iger. And we've talked about, you know, and it's personal a lot of times, you know, if it's their if it's their building and their office space or whatever it might be, it's as personal as their kitchen and their house, right? They they have a vested interest in all these kind of uh, these parts and pieces, which is fascinating. Yeah, and you you had also asked about what goes wrong, mm-hmm. and with those items said, and this again I would say is the exception, but where it can go wrong quick is when the architect stops listening after doing an incredible job on the initial listen and then the initial plan or program, you can't disconnect. You've got to stay in. And especially with certain industry clients, they're always changing and evolving. So staying in, engaged, you know, engaged long enough. Um, And then as we all know, the biggest challenge we have on construction sites is slow or lack of decision-making. Mm-hmm. which everybody contributes to. It's not the designer client. It's always the combination or the builders quite often aren't giving enough information to help make that decision. But if the architect stays engaged and can be pro- very uh, proactive in helping that client continue to make decisions yeah, and continue to understand their needs, we just have better outcomes that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting. The, the architect can then overthink it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and take it down a path that it isn't necessarily worthy of taking down and kind of go, yeah, it goes, it goes Architects awry. Architects can overcomplicate the most simple thing in the world, <laughs> you know, while at the same time they get blamed when things don't go right. So, right. you know, you, there's always that finding the middle of the road, but the architects that have the experience and the better architects are going to be the ones that know when it's time to hand the design off and get, yeah. a, get an assist. Yeah from the contractors and say, hey, I need you to finish this. Yeah. And be clear about it up front. Yeah. Don't don't leave that as a mystery. This I need you to finish. Do you do you think we don't engage the contractor early enough in general? Yeah, as a rule of thumb, I think, you know, it's not it, the traditional design bid build causes a lot of that. And yeah. it's a trust issue in certain ways. Yeah. And today, more than 20 years ago, I would say steadily for 20, the past 20 years in my experience, there's been new players added to the client team and, and in the industry at large, procurement and compliance and uh, project management industry has grown quite a bit. So they add other, uh, you know, another dimension in. Yeah. So it can get confusing. It can get complicated. But we, we all need to zero in on efficiency. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we're going to get judged on, you know, sticking to the original price, the original date. Delivering something better than the last job that they got from that architect and, you know, delivering a high quality that they're accustomed to. Yeah. And the client doesn't want to see us not get along. They want to see their team work well together because they know that's efficiency at work. One plus one equals three when that's going on. And the opposite, one plus one can equal zero when the team doesn't work well. (laughs) So being a team and getting in early solidifies that, that, hey, we're in this together. So I knew what you were doing the whole way along and I, it's just less excuses, less room for error. Yeah, outcomes. One of the best things that we did, actually, the project that that we're both working on for Times Square at TSX, mm-hmm. um, is we we actually hired. We needed a project manager, another project architect, and we needed someone really experienced. It's a very complicated building. Uh, we had, you know, I've talked about this before, even on this uh, on this podcast. We stubbed our toe along the way early on in that project, 
And we built, we had to build that team, almost rebuild that team. And, and now the team is phenomenal. It's, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. We learned a lot from that experience, but one of the, one of the people that we hired is an architect by trade, but he worked for a contractor for most of his career. It was probably the, one of the best hires we ever made because he immediately started saying, well, I don't look at the drawings that way. I'm looking at it from how the contractor needs to build it. We're not drawing it right. We're not doing this right. This is how this has to happen. This is a, you know, we need to start taking these trades apart. You know, the building doesn't look like this on paper. It looks like this to one guy, this to another guy, and we've got to split all that up. And so that's a valuable lesson that I think we've taken now into other projects is how are we looking at projects, right? How are we drawing them? Are we drawing them efficiently? Or are we drawing them just sort of the way that we did it the last time, right? And, and I think that's really helped kind of a lot of what we do along the way. So it's really about that. There's got to be more collaboration between the, the, the client or, or the, the architect and the client, ultimately. As far as um, the business model for architects goes, um, you work with obviously lots and lots of architect, in, architects. In your opinion, you know, what has to change with the business model? What are the, what are the changes you see kind of coming? Where have you seen it? That kind of stuff. First, let me say that I think all architects should be paid much more <laughs> for everybody out there that might be listening. Um, I think the architect industry needs to find its floor and the way you do that in our industry, because we're not that different. We, we have contractors clubbing each other over the head to win, a, win an assignment. But you've got to really understand your value proposition and you've got to be really effective at selling that early and not waiting for the competition. When everybody's selling everything, the client can't hear as well. There's mm -hmm. just too much background noise. So having the client understand the value proposition because, you know, it's really about uh, best value in the end. Yeah. And, and having the client buy in on that concept, it's not about low price. And I think the model itself, you know, needs to look at the fee side of things and, and consider how its value can go up. So one, one area that I see value growing with the architect industry and how the industry is changing is the innovation side. Uh, there's firms out there that are really on the cutting edge of, you know, there's maybe not widespread adoption of AI in the design software tools yet, but it's out there and it's getting adopted and starting to show its, its head out there. And there's some architects that are ahead of the game on that. And I think there's clients that are buying in mm -hmm. and, um, you know, differentiating yourself in that way. Uh, Mancini Duffy has an incredible lab. Uh, we are building a lab as well. So we're going to actually, actually interview you for how to okay, do that. Cool. We're going to find out what's right. the best way to build a lab. But we're all innovating and the innovators are going to, their model is going to evolve. And I think one area you evolve when you innovate is, and not just staying in the traditional silo box of design and architecture, bringing in design build, design assist, mm -hmm. modular, those types of views sure. on how delivery could be different. Um, I don't know, you know, if design, traditional design bid build will be completely scrapped by any of the major clients out there anytime soon, but they certainly would be, we've already have I'm going to say 10% of our revenue today at STO Building Group is design built. 10%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't target 10% as a as a as a goal, but that was mostly clients asking us to deliver design. Build. Sure. And in some cases, architects came in excited and passionate to be part of the team. In other cases, they came in kicking and crying about you know we want to be in our box and not be in both boxes. Right. So it just it just speaks to where is this all going? Yeah. And I think getting away from Traditional design did build is where the model ought to be going because yeah. we're going there. Yep. And I think our supply chain is going to come up with us, but technology is going to help that happen. Absolutely. Transparency is really key for, yep. for all parties, all key stakeholders. And I think these new platforms, these end-to-end -end suites of project management tools that are out there, design and project management tools are going to give client full transparency, real-time data. And we're going to end up working together like partners anyway. So you yeah, might absolutely. as well get going. Yeah. I mean, in our process, we bring everyone into the Revit model um, through our software, right? So everybody logs in and we can have a meeting inside your project in the Revit model. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's uh, you're actually in our office in the lab or you're on a screen or however you want to do it. But everyone's in that model and the, the client is in there. 
A lot of times, unfortunately, the contractor is missing. It'd be awesome to have the contractor in there because then as we spin around, you know, and we're showing whatever piece of ductwork, you know, the contractor can say, hey, by the way, how are you going to get that piece of ductwork in there? Or, you know, look how you wedge that in between, you know, these two immovable objects, right? That can't physically happen in the room. And likewise, our industry, the the construction management, general contractors, subcontractor, supplier side need to become more advanced in their thinking of how to be a value-add participant in that process. Yeah. So our industry needs to evolve as well. But ultimately, the VDC side, the planning side of our industry is expanding, becoming much more, much more certainty is going to be provided to clients in the early stage, which is a win for everybody. Absolutely. You know, you can imagine how that would help the client make decisions, ultimately less surprises in the end. The architect's never going to, well, maybe never, a lot less anyway, hear, hey, that's not what I thought I was going to get, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. all the other benefits of planning early and a little more VDC up front is, is yeah. helpful. You're absolutely right. It's decision making by everybody mm-hmm. and and a lot of times on the client that slows down the process. You know, they they don't, and it's, it's not their fault. They don't know what they're looking at, right? Because they don't do this all the time and we do this all the time. We understand what lines represent in the real world. Where in a 3D model, in an, in an AR, VR situation, you can see all of that. Do you think that... One, one um, other item to add to the yeah. where's the model going. I would just throw out there that the, the, the ongoing operations side is an, is an untapped area point. for the design industry. I believe there's architects out there playing in that. But when we do a two-year project and then there's 10 more years or eight more years or 15 more years on a lease or a large REIT is building a new property that they're going to own for 50 years or whatever the cycle will be, uh, making sure that there's a really good job done on the material selection, mm-hmm. the constructability, and just the usability and staying then after the project's over so that there's an analysis done, a proper study done on is my space as efficient it was as it was meant to be. Also, the client side, is the client using this space the way they said they would want to use it? And then reacting to that, so the client gets the ultimate best ROI for the total capex spend, yeah. the total investment. And I think there's another place to differentiate. I think clients are looking for that. We're, yeah. we're seeing the, the the request of us to stay on the post occupancy. Yeah, everybody gets day two requests, but how about day three? So we we are very much building some ideas and solution software for starters, and then some operations. We're piloting something this fall with a client that's asked us to stay in and provide day three. So ongoing operations services. Wow. There's got to be an architect involved there. We're not looking to step into the design side. Right. So we're, you know, yeah. we're looking for this. It's a great point. There. It's a great point. Um, do you think that architects should have more field experience as part of the, whether it's the education process or before you get a job, you have to work at a CM for a year or you have to be a laborer for a certain amount of time. Do you think that that is a good idea? My thoughts on education are the more diverse your education, the more diverse your experiential education is, the faster you're going to learn. So the 25-year-old or the 30-year-old or the 40-year-old who has more experiences is going to probably offer more. Yeah. Their career is going to probably advance faster. Yeah. So we have a rotational project engineer program. I, we have 40 interns with us right now in the New York market. Um, and maybe a few of those are with our Jersey office. And uh, we talk about this all the time with them. And then the folks that are in the internship group that roll into our project engineer group that are full-time employees, they go into all the different main disciplines for six months each. We've also just added a segment. So there's estimating, there's operations, there's MEP. Now there's also safety to really understand not only the need for safety, but also to make sure that safety and job cleanliness and even schedule all and cost are all tied together. Sure. And to think that the way you manage a project saves lives is an incredible idea, right? So having somebody invest not only in the basic training that everybody gets, but go above and become a safety manager for a couple of months or work under a safety manager. So my answer to that question about the architect's uh, initial years being exposed is absolutely would help. So can so in your your intern program, are, there are actual engineers in there. So it's not necessarily always construction. It, it, so an architect could roughly go half of our hires and our wow. interns are, are engineering That's great. degree kids. That's yeah. great. There's quite a bit. Uh, but you know, you don't. I had a business degree. 
Uh, and I've seen a wide variety of degrees come in, but the engineering degree is a pretty common one, mm -hmm. but not necessarily important when it comes to the people side of the business. It's really about chemistry and personality and yeah. communication skills. Yep. But our industry, as you know, is very logical oriented and numbers oriented, so it doesn't hurt. Right. Absolutely. So um, let's talk a little bit about the Structure Tone Origins or the STO Building Group, as you guys are now. So you celebrated your 50th anniversary. It was an awesome party. Thank you for inviting me. Um, you, you know, there, there was a room uh, with an incredible display showing, you know, the, the 50 years of, of your organization, you know, um, and there were hundreds, if not thousands of people there. Um, we were happy to, to participate. Uh, Ralph Mancini absolutely loved structure tone like family. And uh, I remember the first time when I first started at Mancini, uh, I had brought a, a, a client with me and he and they had asked for contractor recommendations. And Ralph said, you've got to call you've got to call Jim Donahue. And I was like, I can't call Jim Donahue. He's like the, the, the owner, like the, he's the main guy. He's not going to pick up my call. He's like, no. And then I remember he he like picked up the phone and called you and, you know, you, you came over to the office it was one of the first times I met you. And I'll never forget that. And Ralph just, you know, no matter what you do, you got to always call Structure Tone. They're always there to help. They're always a partner. They're always a partner. Um, so do you ever think about your responsibility as the executive chairman in carrying the, you know, the weight of the organization forward? You know, I think of it for me with Ralph, mm -hmm. you know, I made a promise to Ralph that I'll keep this place alive till the next guy comes and takes my place. How do you, how, how does that, you know, kind of reconcile in your head? You know, I don't really give that much thought in the way you just asked it, but it's not lost on me that this is quite a legacy. Mm -hmm. And my father started it with his partner, Lou Marino, and um, in 1971. And the relationship with Ralph was started with Lou, with, started with Lou and then my father and John White. And it was just solidified. They, they, I think they worked like partners. Mm -hmm. We would never let Ralph down. And Ralph, likewise, would, would really go out of his way to be as helpful as he could be as an architect. And the relationship was solidified. There was a sense of the culture was a good match. Mm -hmm. And today, this company is the same way. And the merger partners that have come in over the past six years at STO Building Group were very carefully uh, selected over many years in some cases. We had long-standing JV and alliance relationships with those merger partners. Just to name one, Govan Brown, based out of Toronto, they have offices across Canada. Uh, we had worked with for the last 20 years and um, their culture was very much a perfect match. Very client-facing, very much treated their people like family. So the family culture stayed intact when those merger partners and, and there's six or seven other names that have come in over the last half a dozen years. Um, but that personality, that culture that this company's had is what I focus on more than any other aspect. Mm -hmm. Now, the second thing is with that culture being what it is, very family culture driven and, and client facing. And we believe we are the best at what we do. So it's an exciting place to be when you're winning a lot of great assignments. The relationships are really strong. And you're working along some of the best and brightest in the industry. It's not hard to keep people. We have a tremendous amount of our staff and executive team that are with us over 20 years. Yeah. We've got a hand, you know, more than probably most companies do that are over 40 years. Wow. So having that makes my job extraordinarily easy compared to if I didn't have those things going on. So there's a there's a legacy and a tradition here that's not something I built by myself. Sure. There's a very large team. And it was all started before we started. So your father started trying to keep the it going is really making sure that the messages aren't lost, the values aren't lost is really one of the things I work at. Yeah, I'm sure. So you're, how did your father end up starting the company? Where did, where did he 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 immigrated here from Ireland? Correct. My father and mother immigrated in the 1950s. Okay. They were both teenagers. They met here in New York, and uh, my father was a trained carpenter. He went to technical school instead of college. He was at a technical school, which is the equivalent of college, but he became a carpenter. And uh, when he came over here, he did get a pro he got an uh, opportunity to work for uh, a, a, mill a mill workshop. And from there, he was uh, he was given an opportunity to work at a general contractor called St. Whitecall. It was Whitecall at the time. I worked under a different division at some point. That's a whole other story, though, <laughs> down in Florida called St. Whitecall. Um, 
But my father uh, worked and then ended up running that business. And at some point, there was not an opportunity for him to become an owner. It was a second generation family run business. So he said, you know, I'm young enough. I'm going to give this a try on my own after meeting Lou Marino, who had the same idea working somewhere else. Okay. So they started and their basic concept was they felt New York City could really use a new contractor that had a really high level, high touch focus on client service. They felt it was missing. They thought they were really good at building. And I, I think nobody's ever disagreed with that. They've always been fairly well known as being strong on the building side. And even even stronger when John White had come in in the late 70s, added to that that uh, that reputation. But what they all had, the three of them, John, Lou and my father, they had the client touch. Mm. They got it. They understood it. And they could do their job, their day job in their sleep because they really were good at it. They were all builders. Uh, uh, my father was a carpenter. John was a laborer. And uh, if you saw them in action with the client, you'd say that's unique and special. I got to live with that. And I got to watch that, yeah. as did a number of other folks that are still in the company today. I would say that's probably the number one differentiator we have going. Now, the merger partners came in were very similar. And, you know, we do work hard. Uh, I would say this is the busiest year we've ever had. So I don't think I've ever worked more than this year. So, we, you know, there's no resting on our laurels. But the excitement I get today is not about, boy, look at that project. And that, and that is always fun. It's really about look at the team growing. Yeah. And I see these 30-year-olds now. In our, in our management meetings and these emerging leader um, training uh, conferences that we do, and I see the talent and they're just, they're light years ahead of where I was. Wow. And if I'm right, I get to retire on time and with a, with a better <laughs> team than we had waiting to take over. And that's, that's my goal. So when you're... By when, the way, I got at least 10 years left. <laughs> so I don't want to send out any mixed signals out there. So that's actually one of my questions down the road. Um, so... When the you know the Donahues, the Whites, and the Marino family, you, you know, it, structure tone starts. You know, how does it go from that to let's say the mid '80s, where you start to really become sort of the go-to contractor? And how big from the '70s to the '80s what did did it evolve? It was a steady growth. It wasn't out of control. Uh, when we got to the '80s, it was an opportunity to open up offices in Boston and Washington, D.C. and New Jersey, where clients said, hey, I love what you do for me in New York. I don't get that in my city. Would you come and open up an office and do some work for us? It was always come to the job site first. And then it was, can you open an office and stay here and keep servicing us? Sure. My father had a philosophy to say yes and figure it out later. Now, those are not his words. He'd he'd probably say, I didn't say that. But that's kind of what he did. He he would say yes, because he wasn't going to say no to his clients. And I think he felt in his heart, I can figure this out. It can't be harder than New York. New York is truly to this day still, I would say, the hardest city in in the United States, North America, to build a construction company um, because of all the different logistics and agencies and and, uh, for a number of other unions and all the other things. And he was successful in all, in all of his new offices that he opened. Uh, we got brought to Canary Wharf by the late 80s. Uh, um, we merged a company out of Dallas into our business in the 80s, which was an old partner of John White's from his prior company who needed some assistance financially speaking, but had the operations in Dallas. Today, we're in four of the main cities in Texas and, and running quite a successful business there. And... Uh, we weren't in a rush, mad rush to grow, but we did hit a billion dollars in 1996. When I came out of college in 89, we're about 200 million. We got to a billion in 96. We hit our second billion by 2001. And as we all know, the market collapsed yeah. and 9-11 hit us. We saw a 25% reduction in revenue. And my father had retired already in 1999. So I was a 33-year-old, maybe 34 years old. And... Uh, got my first big lesson about diversity. Mm. You've got to be diverse in our business, especially if you expand the way we did. So we've been working at that ever since today. 50% of our worldwide revenue, which is now over $10 billion, is new building. Wow. So a lot of people don't know that fact. A lot of people would be there, say, they say, especially the New Yorkers who yeah. watched us grow up as an interior firm, don't understand how much of this company is now new build and, uh, and how much has grown outside the New York area. But we basically kept the values intact, strengthened the management team, really enhanced our training programs, and invested a fortune in technology. And that's what's keeping the company very tight. We bring in fresh blood when when and where needed. 
And we work really hard on, on keeping the, uh, the business exciting for those under 10 years because those folks tend to jump around a lot more now than they did when I came into the business. Sure. So they're really looking for experiential training. And there's no better platform right now in our industry anywhere than STO Building Group for those, those under 10 years in the wow. business wow. in terms of experiential it's funny, as you describe it, you know, we are, I mean, my firm, we are kind of like the mini version of, of you, right? We, we are known for corporate interiors because that's what Ralph did. Mm-hmm. But the reality is right now, we probably are doing about 60%, you know, new out of the ground architecture mm-hmm. uh, and less and less, uh, especially on the corporate interior side. We do a lot of different types of interiors from restaurants to hotels and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we one of the things that I learned also from, you know, my you know, I obviously was around for 9-11, but then, you know, more in 2008, kind of seeing where the struggles were, we had to get out of corporate interiors. And, you know, Mancini was corporate interiors for financial services. I mean, it was about as hard hit as you could get. Mm-hmm. And so we do we do a lot of different diverse types of work, all the way from data centers now to self-storage buildings, stuff that we don't necessarily, it may not be the most glamorous work, but it's good diversity of work. It's also good places for people to start, cut their teeth on, then evolve. And before you know it, they're doing a super high-end restaurant or a high-end hotel. Mm-hmm. And it's a good diversity of kind of work. I and mean, you've got you've to do that in order to stay relevant or you're, you never know what's going to happen. Like Mancini, STO Building Group, would rather say yes to the client that has two and three and four sectors in, in, their, in their wheelhouse. Look at Google today. Yep. That's not an office space client or a data center client. You know, it's, it's a company that's got really, it feels like unlimited resources and they're building data centers. They're building, you know, office spaces all over the place. Um, Amazon is building, you know, warehouse spaces, data centers, office space. Grocery stores. Grocery <laughs> stores. So you have to migrate out of the interior business if you want to if you want to continue growth. And for us, growth means opportunity for our people. We have 4,000 staff today to give 4,000 people the opportunity and feel the energy and that engagement of growth, you've got to grow. Sure. And now it's not unsustainable growth. It's a steady growth. But if you look at these clients and you see the need for growth based on the employee opportunity, you've got to be good at strategic planning. And I would say that's probably something I did very different than my father's generation did. It was one of the first things I did was invest the time and energy into writing a five-year plan and asking, what does the overhead look like when you multiply it by five years? And if we're going to spend that much money, can I spend a little bit of it in these new innovative things? And the answer was always yes every time you ran the numbers out. You'd say, of course, we can invest in a healthcare leader. Mm-hmm. Of course, we can invest in a larger marketing effort in data centers. Or we, of course, we can invest that amount of money in our training program or our IT systems, and you can go on and on. Quite often, contractors are running their business, and I think architects are very similar, on a one-year-at-a-time view based on a based on their balance sheet, mm-hmm. instead of looking out far enough and saying, you know, well, we'll have to work harder and we've got to be innovative here and we've got to make sure we are transformational to some degree so things don't get to just stay the same. You know, it's a little uncomfortable, but you end up creating an environment and a culture around that and it perpetuates itself. Yep. You know, it's, it's actually exciting to watch the culture evolve into a self-perpetuating, innovative you know, group. Absolutely. We worked with a coach when I, you know, kind of took over Mancini. Uh, we worked with a, an executive coach that kind of helped us with strategic planning. And, you know, one of his things was you do a one-year plan, you do a three-year plan, you do a five-year plan, and then you do a 30-year plan, right? You like really, really look out. Where do you think you want to be? All the stuff that you say you're going to be in 30 years, probably not going to get anywhere near that. It's probably just completely irrelevant. But Ironically, that 30-year plan helped guide the five-year plan, right? And that, what do we really want to be in 30 years? What are, what are the aspirational things that we want to achieve? And so we revisit that, you know, every few years. You know, what is that? Are we, are we on track or was that ridiculous? Some of that 30-year plan is totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I don't even know why we, we don't even know what the heck it was for, right? You know, but, but some of it was legit and some of it we're actually marching toward, which is, which is great. So I agree. Planning is... It is the way you innovate. Ultimately, is to you, things don't just pop and happen, right? You've got to you've got to really think about them, think them through. 
So you were growing up, you know, around the construction industry. Did you work, you know, as a, you know, as a teenager on a job site? How did that work? Yeah. You know, having a father like Pat Dunahy, there was no resting on the couch. And uh, <laughs> whether you were in sports or you were working or whatever you did during school, I always worked. I was a, I worked at a couple of gas stations. I worked at my aunt's deli. I worked for a landscaper. I worked for a carpentry firm, you know, doing the grunt work, of course. Uh, but I always worked the summers uh, at Structure Tone. I was a laborer. 1983 was the first time I got a $5 an hour paycheck. And I was, you know, I felt like I was the only kid in North Rockland, okay, which where we lived in Stony Point up in, up in Rockland County. 55-mile drive in, 55-mile drive home, almost always on the bus. Sometimes I was able to get a ride. And, uh, you know, you, you brought home the paycheck. It was kind of cool. But to spend the day as a laborer was really unique, different, special, exhausting. Uh, but very few, if any of my friends had that experience. I had a few other friends I knew, I knew they were in contracting on some level, but at that age, there was nobody doing that. And then in time, it became a natural. After enough structured zone picnics and Christmas parties, it really felt like a family. Sure. And I felt like I was just staying with my family. I didn't feel like I was being recruited or hired by. I was staying in the family business. Did you ever at any point think, I don't want to be in the family business. I want to do something totally different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to get into too many details. But let me tell you something. Working in a family business has its ups and there's some downs. Okay. But it, 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 never, it, never, it was never lost on me that it was special. And, and we had something really great going on for many years. To this day, the family has sold its controlling stake in the in in the STO building group, but we maintain a the family still maintains a stake in the business, sure. um, as well as all the executives, and and we now have two thousand shareholders, which is one of the main reasons we were interested in a management led buyout and brought in a new partnership team that are extraordinary people. It would take another hour podcast to get into that. But they're extraordinary. Our board, uh, by way of that group, has been strengthened in a way that's, I feel, uh, very lucky to count amongst my peers on the board. Uh, you know, some of the best leaders I've ever met in the AEC industry, but also leaders from other sectors uh, like energy and oil and, and technology, uh, engineering, just terrific backgrounds. So uh, the family business was. Uh, it made it feel many times like you weren't working. It was, it was your legacy you were working on, in a <laughs> sense. And to this day, the family culture is is really strong. At times, I even feel it's stronger than it's ever been. Uh, and each of our merger partners that had come in carried that same family culture. We maintain that family culture today at all of those businesses, all those business units. Their brands are intact. That was really, really important that when we found the right merger partner, not only was the, the values almost identical and that there was enough experience that we could tr the trust was built, but then the, uh, the ongoing legacy of their local yeah. brand and reputation and management team and all that was intact. Because we don't want to fly to all these cities with the idea that we're going to rebuild and build from scratch. We've done that uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I spent time myself doing that. And it takes a long time. And it's hit and miss at times. And it's a slow train that you get on, sure. fighting your way up past the top five in an industry. It takes a long time. Sure, sure. Uh, but we've done it. We've got experience in that end of the industry as well. Awesome. Um, so let's. We, we touched a little bit on the Multiple Sclerosis Society. Um you know, I mentioned that you're in many charities. One of them is MS and you and I are on the, you know, I'm helping with the committee uh, mm -hmm. as I do every year um, for our event that we throw. It actually happens to be next week. June 23rd, um, in case right. this gets out on time. I'm not sure it will. <laughs> it's, um, so it's the race against MS at the Belmont. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful event. How did you get involved in, in the organization? It's a great question. My mom has MS since around 1989, 1990. Um, she was diagnosed late in life. There was very few remedies then. Today, there's a tremendous amount of remedies for those with MS. It doesn't, it's not cured, but it, it, you can see the road to, to a cure. You can see it. And the amount of research and development being done in MS, it's extraordinary. So there's a very high percentage of our dollars that we raise at our event that goes to research and, and, and development of these new solutions, these new cures and, the, and these, not cures because it's not cured, but that, uh, um, uh, medications that and, and experiential experimental uh, drugs and things okay. of that nature. 
So they're working really hard on it. There's quite a few more MS, those living with MS today, they were having a far better life than they would have had. It's easier to diagnose today. That was a problem back in the day, uh, way back 30 years ago. It was very hard to diagnose that disease. And uh, we've raised over $8 million at this particular event yeah. in, our, in our past 20 years. And thanks to you as well for helping us get there. Um, but my, my mom is why. And there was an opportunity. The president of MS asked me, you know, is there anything you could do? And I had a friend whose wife had MS and another friend, both in the real estate industry, whose wife, uh, mother had MS. And we bonded together and said, let's take over this particular event. Mm -hmm. Because they said that event isn't working well. It doesn't raise much money. Uh, it went from a fifty to $70,000 a year event to a $400,000 plus a year event. So, yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a great event. It's probably one of the best industry events that I think exists. Um, and the way I got involved was Ralph Mancini's wife has MS. Yes. And, um, you know, after Ralph passed away, and Ralph was a force, right? Ralph was on our committee. Mm -hmm. And we lost Ralph, as you know, very well. Yep. Yep. Too soon. Yeah. And I'll never forget his energy in his first few months of being on the committee. And the first thing he wanted to do was be a mission speaker at the event, <laughs> which came within months of joining. And there he is grabbing the mic. Typical Ralph <laughs> wants to be at the mic in front of, we had at least 400 people there. He knocked it out of the house in terms of explaining what it's like to live with MS as a spouse. And Josephine has been at the event most years since. Yep. We have the event, uh, uh, the recognition we used to give the Blue Ribbon Award is now called the Ralph Mancini Blue Ribbon Award in, in memory of Ralph. Yeah. He's a special man. It's great. And, and I will say one thing I've learned about MS is that there are so many people that have it and you wouldn't even know it, right? And that it, it, it comes in waves for them. Some people have it, you know, worse than others, but it's, it's a really hidden kind of, of thing. And it's, it, it. And one thing I love about the committee, every time we start in that committee, every year, I think that the folks from MS always say, you know, we're, we're getting close to a cure. We're getting close to a cure. And I know one of these kickoffs are going to say, as a matter of fact, we the have events canceled. We, we have a, right, We've we have cured a cure. it. But just, you know, to point out that the this disease affects three out of four people affected are women. And when you think about us as business leaders, making sure that women are far more respected and equal in the workforce and giving as good and in our industry, sometimes even better opportunities than they've ever had. Um, you know, this is something that imagine being a mom dealing with MS where you become in many cases, uh, you know, you're, you're not able to, to walk around and, and yeah. uh, travel around the way you would normally walk around and travel. And it affects everybody differently. But um, to think that we can help women, you know, give them a shot in the arm and, and, and let them know we're behind them who are affected by MS, that they can stay in the workforce, yeah. that the service is available. There's a cure coming. Yeah, it's empowering. It's empowering. I think it excites the board. I mean, our committee, we've had mostly women honorees. Yeah. And uh, I think we're all rallying around that cause now. Yeah. It's, it's an, a, an awesome event. It really is. And thank you for letting me be part of it. Um, so kind of switching gears back and just kind of getting ready to wrap up here. Um, what are the next 50 years at STO Building Group look like? I'll be around for about 10 of those, <laughs> give or take, maybe a little longer if, uh, if, they, if they want me. Um, you know, we're going to keep growing at a steady, sustainable rate, which means we need to keep looking for new, new markets to take what we're good at and in an adjacent kind of way keep easing our way into new expertise. So healthcare is the area that we started growing into about 13, 14 years ago. We're now one of the top five healthcare builders in the United States, maybe even a little bigger than that. Um, I see us continuing to expand in that sector. Uh, I see us getting further into data centers. We were the largest, one of the largest data center builders in the 90s. The markets really changed in terms of where you had to be located for data centers after 9-11. We lost our position for uh, several years, but we're catching back up and I see us really growing on that. I see us getting into transportation of all sorts, so distribution and transportation of whether it's retail goods, consumer goods, uh, transportation at large, not necessarily highways and bridges, but all those buildings that have to do with transportation, the airlines, yeah. uh, cargo buildings, cold storage, distribution for the Amazon types and the Prologis types. That infrastructure is going to keep growing and building. I'd like to think we'll be one of the most foremost, most partners in that expertise. I see us partnering with developers to locate uh, sites. We're, we're good at that already. 
I see us continuing to expand our services as a partner to the real estate developers. And listen, there's, there's, without trying, I could pick out six $1 billion pockets that we're not in now that are right in our backyard sure. that are reasonable to say we could win that work. Yeah. Now, it's not something you'd reasonably say do it quick, but it's reasonable to say we can keep picking away over the next six, seven, 10 years without even trying right in our backyard without doing anything new. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the ongoing M&A activity that we will still have, but we're going to continue looking for merger partners that are just like us. The fact that we're in, there's so many countries we don't even work in today. Okay. The Pacific Rim is one area. Uh, you know, certainly Europe, there's further growth there in sure. South America. Sure. But uh, there's so much right here in our backyard in North America, as well as Ireland and London that we don't do yet. So for many years into the future, I see, I see us doing that. I also see us being a service for information in the future. Because of the technology investments we're making today, I believe because of the fact that we do over 3,000 projects a year in over 100 cities out of our 45 offices and growing, we're going to have more data in our organization than any other contractor on the planet. Wow. Okay. And that data is going to be worth something to quite a few clients and consultants and people we do business with in the future. So I see that being something in the future. Yeah. That's smart. exciting. Yeah. That's smart. What, what do you want your legacy to be? Have you given any thought to that? Yeah, I, I've given some thought to that. I'd like my legacy to be that I did, that I didn't screw it up. <laughs> I was given a great opportunity. Um, and I and I kept it going. And he made changes for the company that improved people's lives. And he created a culture that was transformative and innovative in action, in reality, and not just in spirit and in talk. Yeah. And I think that's it. You know, I, I, certainly I, I love that. my home life. I like my love being around my son and my wife. <laughs> I would like to retire on time. I'd like to be that make that part of my legacy as well. I think that's important that the younger generation see that, yeah. that you can have a great life. Work-life balance mm-hmm. is important. I don't think the prior generation worked hard at that because it wasn't really the norm back in the day. If you had an opportunity to run and build a business, you worked until... I mean, you know, there's plenty of stories out there. That's another podcast. Uh-huh. But uh, they, they work differently back in the day. And there was, uh, you know, a bit more socializing going on and, and maybe more fun times in the industry. Yeah. And not that we're not having fun today, but uh, family life and work-life balance to me is really key. And you attract far better talent and retain talent better when your culture really respects the need to have a a good home, family life, and personal wellness and that kind of thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Exactly. And and we do that here. We try to do that. We're the same as you. We're very, very busy now. So, I, you know, that gets interrupted along the way because people are so dedicated, which is always so humbling. And I'm so grateful for that, right, that people will kind of put aside their personal life to get the work done and because they're so passionate about it. But it does come in waves. And we like to try and make sure that everyone does have that work-life balance. It's extraordinarily important. It's something that's one of our values that we have here. So um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to discuss? No, I think we, we covered the wide spectrum. Uh, <laughs> we could have covered technology a little more. Uh, okay. We could have covered, you know, going upstream together and, and knocking on doors with clients as a team and being a partner. Um, not that we have to be set as a partner, but the idea that you can partner together with design and build. And then whichever way the client chooses to deliver the project is is their choice. But to go to see the client together and explain options uh, for their, their facility for the next projects in the future, not even having a location. Mm-hmm. Is something that could be, uh, you know, again, another podcast for okay. another day. All right, good. Round um, two. But the technology side, I know you're very invested. I want to see yeah. you to talk about your lab at some point. We're gonna we're building a lab. We just rented the space. Okay. And uh, we see uh, the investments we're making in these new startups, construct tech startups. We have a, a dozen investments we've made in the past two years, working alongside other industry leaders like Thornton Tomasetti yes. and uh, Siska Hennessy um, and a couple of others that uh, we wor- we're working together on finding those, those, those collaborative solutions that don't exist today. And, um, you know, we see that being transformative in terms of how we communicate together yep. to the client and create analytics where we can create success modeling over how our jobs ought to look from a data point of view, but also how we design and, 
estimate and do scheduling together and not have it be so siloed. Absolutely. And, and technology is the bridge for that. It really is. And if we're all working in the same 3D model and we're all working you know, on the cloud on that model and we're all in this system, you know, A, it takes a lot of pressure off the architect because then we can we can deliver you the model rather than flattening that model out and printing it out on pieces of paper. Um, there's just so much lost in translation there, collaborating and working together on constructability. There, there's, yeah, we got, uh, you know, an integrated design software solution where you can circle and bubble out the areas you want us to finish the design. Mm-hmm. So it's that clear. And it's and trust is part of that, that you're trusting that we're there to help you yeah, and that we're going to do a good job and we're going to own our work too. You can almost imagine how that helps you focus your energy on the stuff you you really want to put your energy in on. Mm-hmm. Give up the stuff you're like, I don't add a lot of value in those items anyway. And I just think you start to see the silos go away and, and we start to learn how we can add value. We get to learn how to add more value on the design assets. We can also bring more suppliers in early that can help us even do a better job on some of the BIMing and some of the, sure. the 3Ding. Sure. And you know, 4D and 5D is on its way. Right. And it's not here yet, but it's oh yeah. It's, it's right out there. Oh, there's there's stuff out there like that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's coming for sure. Um so yeah, round two. We'll do another we'll do another hour to. for sure. We'd so Jim, thank you for being my guest on the Anti Architect uh, podcast. Uh, your friendship over the years uh, really does mean a lot. You've been uh, a mentor and and really just helped me in my career. And I can't thank you enough for that. I love our friendship. Uh, you're a class act. So is your company. And uh, like I said, I look, I look forward to coming back and hear more about the next generation lab that you built over here. You're always, you've always been on the cutting edge. <laughs> I think Ralph found a great successor. Uh, he, he, he was a smart man. One skill he had besides carrying that baseball bat and scaring everybody that they better stay on schedule. He knew how to pick talent. Yeah. I saw it. And I think that's what he liked about our folks. He met them and he knew that they were the right people. Right. And he did the same with you. And I'm, I'm happy for him and his family that they have this uh, this legacy intact. Well, thank you. So to see and read more about Jim and STO Building Group, you can follow them on their Instagram, their social media, and obviously on the, on the website. Thank you, Jim. Cheers. Thank you.